This is Limitless Possibility. I'm Local Vids Meble. And I'm Yannick Mangan. And what's our topic for this week, Yannick? Yannick's Tokyo Travel Guide. Woohoo! I was waiting so much for this episode. Yeah, uh, I might have overdone it a little bit, and I have uh, somehow 3,600 words of notes for this episode, so uh, we'll try to keep it short. And as far as I heard, too, you also have some follow-up. Yep, so uh, last episode, as you may remember, uh, half the show was follow-up, uh, so <laughs> I pushed back some things uh, so that we could have some follow-up again this week. Um <laughs> And all of this concerns the launch of the PS4 Pro, which launched shortly before our last episode uh, came out, except, like I said, I didn't want to overdo it with the follow-up. So first of all, uh, I previously mentioned that I was super impressed with the results of the PS4 Pro's checkerboard upscaling method, and that it would be really nice if developers could go back to existing PS4 games that upscale their graphics and backport this technique into the game. And it turns out that they can't really do that because the PS4 Pro has hardware accommodations for making checkerboard upscaling perform well enough for it to be viable. Um, checkerboard upscaling, the way it's implemented in the PS4 Pro, it's informed by a bunch of metadata about the geometry that's being rendered on screen. And this is how the results manage to be aligned to the pixel grid because it takes that into the consideration when it produces the results, which turn out to be very clean and are incredibly hard to tell as being upscaled when the game is in motion. If you actually grab single freeze frames, you can find artifacts here or there, but otherwise in motion, it's very hard to tell that it's not native 4K. Um, and like I said, the buffer that this metadata is held in does not appear to be present on the base PS4, which means that you would have to do it all in software, and it probably wouldn't perform well enough to be viable. So that's some sad news for uh, base PS4 owners, but I don't think it's this that sad, because on top of that, PS4 Pro has had a little bit of a rocky launch. Um, so first of all, I don't know anyone who's gotten a PS4 Pro that didn't run into issues with HDCP versions on their gaming monitors or televisions. Um, this includes John Syracuse on ATP. Uh, the latest episode is pretty hilarious with regards to that. Uh, it should be the second latest by the time this episode comes out. Um, and it's so funny because only the discussion about monitor. If you ignore that uh, HDCP problem, just a discussion about him buying a new uh, gaming monitor was just so funny. So it's a, it's a good suggestion for our listeners. Yeah, it's a really funny segment on uh, last episode of ATP. Um, but yeah, so the problem is PS4 Pro speaks HDCP 2.2, which is the latest version of the HDCP copy protection scheme. And this is needed for 4K HDR. The problem is that most 4K HDR monitors that people own right now, that they've owned for a while, do not support HDCP 2.2. So you boot up the thing and you either get no video at all or something is wrong and it only presents it in 1080p, which is the... Like, not what you want if you bought a PS4 Pro, probably. Um, so, I should note that all PS4s do allow you to disable HDCP in the settings, though that may prevent you from actually using streaming services like Netflix, uh, because they insist on a minimum level of HDCP compliance for it to actually work. Um, again, if your device doesn't support the latest version of HDCP, some TVs will just block the signal entirely, some will fall back to 1080p. Um, so that was one of the issues that took place with the launch of the PS4 Pro, but that's not all. There's also an issue where certain games, the biggest one being uh, The Last of Us Remastered, are running slower on PS4 Pro than they do on base hardware, which is sort of against the certification requirements for PS4 Pro games, 
which sort of sucks if you bought a PS4 Pro uh, wanting higher... Well, I guess technically it is higher quality graphics, but at the cost of frame rate, which, again, you're not supposed to have on the PS4 Pro. That's the whole point. Um, but games are trying to be overambitious to impress gamers with fancy graphics, but they result in lower frame rates, and that sucks. Yeah, and it's it's funny that you mentioned The Last of Us because, by the way, I started to play the remastered version finally on my typical uh, normal uh, PS4. And I, I think also you sent me that video from our good friend Digital Fundy that were showing the comparison of the two versions of The Last of Us remaster. And yes, you can see frame drops, but the, the, the ratio of it was not that high. Like it was dropping maybe a couple, like at most five frames in certain sequences. So yes, if you look at the numbers, it is poorer performance. Would a normal gamer see the difference? I don't know. Yeah, well, the problem is the PS4 Pro isn't really targeting the normal gamer. It's targeting the hardcore of hardcore gamers, and that's the problem. They're exactly the people who are going to notice this. Yeah, but would you see the difference? Because especially when I watched the video, like the only way I could see the difference was either at the worst moment, like the worst peak of lower performance, or because the graph below both videos were telling me, oh, now it's at 55 FPS, and or here it's at 57, and the other one is at 60. Well, I can't speak for all gamers, but I am particularly sensitive to low frame rates and uh, like video tearing and all that stuff. Like I notice it right away. So okay. I noticed it, but I mean, like, you, I don't know how representative that is of everyone who's going to buy a PS4 Pro. Um, next up, PlayStation VR integration for uh, users of the PS4 Pro is very strange. Have you heard about this? I have not. Okay, so the lowdown on this is PlayStation VR, which, by the way, we didn't really talk about, but it launched like a month or so ago, and we sort of glossed over it because we had a bunch of other follow-up. Um, yeah, but maybe just before we start, also, personally, I didn't hear that much about it in the news, especially compared to uh, the PS4 Pro these days. Like, it feels to me in my typical, like, I'm, I'm not following video game specific news that much. So if a video game news is big enough to be in more like tech, general tech sites, I will show, uh, see it or Yannick will send me some of those news. But it felt to me that VR was, like, the VR review came and went. And I still hear way more about the PS4 Pro a week after its release compared to a week after the PSVR. Well, I think the reason PSVR, you don't hear it that much these days is, first of all, the first wave of games came out, and now it's a long time until the next wave of games come out. The second thing is that none of the games that actually launched with PSVR are experiences that will last you very long, and that, I think, is a problem, because it sort of makes it like this toy that you play for... Like, some of the games are literally 25 to 30 minutes long, and that's not necessarily a problem for some people but if they don't have replay value then like you spent 50 bucks maybe on a game that's 30 minutes long and this fancy vr headset and now you're sort of foaming at the mouth for the next thing that's going to come out so i think that part was sort of botched and i think there are going to be much more exciting games next year like uh namco is working on a version of ace combat which is their uh combat flight simulator that looks absolutely insane and is going to support PlayStation VR. Gran Turismo Sport is going to come out and support PlayStation VR. And right now, like, the most substantial game-like experience that there is on P- 
PSVR is Drive Club VR, which is just a re-release of an existing game. So it's not super impressive, really. Um, so I think that's why you're not really hearing about it. But back to the PS4 Pro integration issue. Um, the way it works, PlayStation VR, is you need to hook up this processing box to your PlayStation uh, that uses that acts as a video pass-through uh, to your television. And that also handles splitting the signal for the headset uh, if you're playing PSVR-enabled titles. Problem is, one, the box doesn't support HDCP 2.2. <laughs> Two, oh, no, I see where the you're box going doesn't support mm-hmm. HDR. Oh, no, really? So you can play... Uh, th- what I can understand is the best that the pass-through box can do is SDR, not HDR, le- like normal uh, dynamic range. 4K pass-through works. When the headset power is off, but when the processing box is in standby. And people have come up with crazy-ass workarounds with, like, HDMI switchers hooked up to power switches and stuff that, like, detects if the power is on on one thing to flip the signal to another HDMI cable that's plugged into the PS4 directly instead of to the processing box. It's very strange, but if you're a PSVR owner... PS4 Pro can really complicate your life, especially if you have a 4K HDR display. And I think they really fucked this up because they launched like literally within a month of each other. No, oh, yeah, it feels to me like I think the best example is remember when there's a new technology, especially and I think it is especially predominant in cars. I'm going back to a car analogy again, but that's okay. And it's like you see the technology, a new shiny toy in like the luxury car, and it's only in the IS of the is of luxury cars and when you see people trying it's like yeah it's good but there's like x y and z problem and then when it comes back into your normal car or like the economy box they have fixed those problems and then everybody can enjoy the way that has been intended to be enjoyed so it, it does feel super strange, especially with the time, the small time lapse between the two releases. But hopefully, uh, in the next release, or maybe with software patches, hopefully they would be able to uh, fix that. Yeah, I don't know if that's actually possible to fix with software. I sort of doubt it, which would really, really suck. But like the rumors originally was that the PlayStation Four Pro would actually have the processing box inside it and i think that would have been a much better idea because then you wouldn't have to worry necessarily that the processing box that comes with the playstation vr doesn't support these things because it would be built into the hardware and you could just hook it up directly into the ps4 um so yeah kind of shitty experience for people with ps4 pro and playstation vr i expected better from sony and i'm sort of disappointed now um but i none of this applies to me because i don't have a ps4 pro and i don't have a psvr are you ready to talk about japan uh i am i wasn't sure but i am okay let's talk about japan so uh listeners of the show have probably um noticed that i speak a lot about going to japan and that's because i try to go every year if i can and i decided to put together a little uh tokyo travel guide because a lot of my friends come up to me and ask me like questions with regards to Traveling to Japan, traveling to Tokyo in particular, what should we do? What's the good season to go? Uh, which airport is better? All of these stuff. So it's sort of a mix of recommendations of stuff to do in Tokyo and the Tokyo metropolitan area and 
FAQs uh, that I've had over the years so that in the future, when friends ask me stuff, I can just point them to this podcast and they can listen to it and they won't have to ask me questions anymore. <laughs> so let's start with the first question, which is, what season of the year should I go to Japan to? Oh, I, I thought the first question would be, where is Japan? But that's <laughs> oh, <okay. laughs> well, yeah, that's a complicated question. Um, no, but uh, let's start with good seasons to go to Japan. So I would recommend early spring or winter for most people. And here's my reasoning. Winter, which I will qualify as December to February, is decent. Uh, it's mostly high single digit temperatures, like around eight and nine or in the 11 to 13 range. Uh, this is all in Celsius, of course. You will rarely see snow. Now, I realize that at the date we're recording this, tomorrow's weather in Japan is supposed to be like snowpocalypse for them. Um, <laughs> this is not normal. And if I recall correctly, you experienced snow apocalypse a lot during your multiple trips to Japan. Yeah, so global warming has really fucked shit up. And... Uh, Occasionally, there are freak snowstorms, and Japan does not deal well with these snowstorms. Um, Canadians do, though. Um, so there's that. It's hilarious if you have Japanese friends to actually go through a freak snowstorm with them, because they look at you like you're crazy, because you know how to deal with it, and they have absolutely no fucking clue what they're supposed to be doing. Like, they will slip on the sidewalk and shit all the time. Um, moving on, Spring. Uh, which I will qualify as most of March and the first two weeks of April. Great season if you want to go see cherry blossoms. Uh, I The first time I went to Japan, I went first week of April, well, like last week of March, first week of April-ish. And like the day I left, they were blossoming. They were late that year. And like the day I left, they were blossoming. I still got to see a little bit of it, but it sort of sucked for the timing. But generally, that's the time window you want to be there for. And again, it's usually 11 to 15 range temperature-wise, I want to say. Um, that's sort of what they have right now as, as well in fall. Um, May to June is a rainy season. So you probably don't want to go then if you want to see the sun out. Um, so that's bad. July to late August, nothing wrong with the weather then, except it's really hot and humid, uh, summer in Japan is. So just take that into consideration. If you are weak to summer like I am, uh, don't torture yourself by going during summer. And then fall, it returns to being reasonable weather again, except uh, if you're going more uh, southwest Japan locations, not Tokyo really, uh, it's another rainy season for them, so you, if you're going into that region of Japan, probably not a good idea. Any questions so far? No, we only talked about season, so that's good. Okay, it's not complicated yet. Okay. FAQ number two. <laughs> Yet, oh my goodness. Can I enjoy... Uh, well, you should see these sections, how tall they are. <laughs> I know, <laughs> okay. I know. Question number two. Can I enjoy Tokyo without any Japanese knowledge? This is an important one. Uh, a lot of people have a lot of anxiety about going to Japan, and then all the signs are in Japanese, and they have no idea what to do. Uh, but for the most part, if you stick to the Tokyo metropolitan area, you're going to be fine. Uh, signs are pretty much bilingual everywhere. Uh, like in major public areas, like train stations, getting around the city, all that stuff is bilingual for the most part. So you don't really have to worry there. It's when you get into shops that you might have to ask for an English menu. Um, but most of the big chains have that. So that's not much of an issue. Um, if you wander around and get lost in a residential area, this has happened to me in the past. 
then you might actually get fucked uh, by people not knowing English. Uh, so just be wary of where you're going. Try to like look at maps and shit to not wind up in the middle of nowhere. Uh, if you leave the Tokyo metro area, it's a lot less of a given that people will, will know English. Of course, in the big cities, yeah, okay, probably. Um, but I think Tokyo is your best bet if you want to just go to Japan and not have to worry about Japanese knowledge at all. Let's talk about plane travel. Oh, b before I continue about uh, English uh, knowledge, yep. I think, like, speaking a lot about that with Tony, I think that might change a bit more uh, starting 2020 because of the Olympics. I think the, like, I think the signage is just really good in general uh, for telling people, like, what's up. Um, like, occasionally there will be train delays or stuff. And this is very, very rare because, again, Japan knows their shit when it comes to trains and stuff, and we'll talk about it a little bit later. But, like, if there are train delays or major issues on train lines, there is a monitor in the train station, and it will rotate to an English version eventually. Like, most signage it takes into consideration that you might not know English. Uh, you might not know Japanese. It's really like, I went to Nagoya, uh, which is west of Tokyo, um, by bullet train a couple years ago, and there... Like, the monitors in trains were not switching to English versions regularly. And train announcements, I believe, were only in Japanese. Like, the announcements in trains in Japan are usually done in Japanese and English. So, you really don't have much to worry about in the Tokyo metro area as it is. It'll probably get better, sure, when 2020 comes. But it's not like it's a dire situation right now. Okay, good to know. Plane travel. Two big airports. Um... Yeah, so Tokyo Narita Airport. This is the main international gateway for Japan. This is the airport I have used 100% of the time, and we'll get into it a little bit later why uh, this has been the case. There's a big gotcha with this airport, though, is that it's not actually in Tokyo. It's 70 kilometers northeast of Tokyo in a little town called Narita. This means that regardless how you choose to get out of the airport, it will take a while, generally over an hour. So... Put that into your mind if you are booking a flight into Narita that it's going to take at least an hour to get out of there and be in Tokyo proper. There is an airport which is actually in Tokyo, and it's Haneda Airport. If you can fly to Haneda, do fly to Haneda. That is the general rule. Um, it's incredibly well positioned if your final position is in Tokyo, duh, because it's in the city, or Kanagawa Prefecture because it's like literally on the border between the two. Flight options, unfortunately, can be limited depending on where in the world you're leaving from and how many collect connecting flights you're willing to tolerate. In my case, uh, when I go to book flights, most flights that end at Haneda involve longer flights with connections at LAX, which seems like super wasteful to fly all the way to California just to go to this, like, 70 kilometers away. Like, it's not... It's kind of weird. Uh, and on top of that, like, generally I found the most Haneda flights here cost twice as much so it's just not feasible for me to actually go to Haneda so I have to sort of bail on it even though people who have been to both really love Haneda airport because it's convenient and they love the interior of the airport which is great uh, general tips for buying uh, flights uh, flights in the middle of the week tend to be a few hundred dollars less from what I can tell so that is a good tip uh, if you can leave on a Wednesday leave on a Wednesday uh, particularly because at Narita Customs, 
Wednesday afternoons are really quiet, and it will take like maybe 15 minutes to get through customs. It's like super fast. Uh, as usual, I recommend using Hipmunk for price shopping for flights uh, because I think that their UI is really, really good, and it presents flights and connections as a timeline, which makes it super easy to visualize, uh, and it's a lot easier to deal with than mostly text interfaces. So that's it for plane travel. Any questions? No, and uh, maybe uh, we'll uh, echo your comment uh, regarding uh, Ipmunk. Uh, sometimes, though, I've seen that, uh, especially because it's mostly a US focus, that we could find better prices uh, on Canadian services. But um, yeah, I think it is super nice to plan a trip and to plan f uh, your flying uh trips and like your stops and all of that stuff and maybe just like trying to find the same uh flight number in or your local uh booking system and you might have more uh options or maybe more uh leverage on the price cool next up how the fuck do i get my phone on japanese cell phone networks this is a good question this is a question that we are uniquely qualified to answer uh so there are a ton of options for connectivity, and unfortunately, this is where it gets sort of complicated. Uh, so free public Wi-Fi is not ubiquitous in Japan like it is in the West. Uh, this is unfortunate. Most of the mobile hot, uh, not mobile hotspots, most of the Wi-Fi hotspots you will find in public areas are owned by phone companies, and they only offer service to either people who want to pay for it or who are members of their cellular or home phone service. And this screws people from the West who do not have subscriptions to their service. Um, so gradually people have been getting better for this. I think this is one of those things that might get better with 2020 approaching. Um, and like recently, because of 2020, among other things, uh, Starbucks has stopped doing stuff like this and just gives you free Wi-Fi directly uh, instead of making you like previously they had you sign up with your email address every time. Uh, which is, was sort of a pain in the ass. Uh, so that's a thing if you want to like get on Wi-Fi. Of course, Wi-Fi isn't always what you want to do. Uh, so the most common connectivity option that I have seen amongst my friends seems to be mobile hotspot rental, where people borrow MiFi's from phone companies that cater to travelers. Uh, generally, these are going to be MVNOs. Primarily, uh, the MVNOs that are open to foreigners are Docomo MVNOs, and we'll talk about the implications of that a little later. For the mobile hotspot thing, though, it doesn't really matter. Uh, this can be a great option if you're traveling as a couple, because then you can get one hotspot, and then both of you can connect to it. Uh, of course, this assumes that you're going to be together for the most of the trip, but that can be convenient for some savings. SIM cards. Your options for SIM cards in Japan are super limited because of regulation that prevents anyone except permanent residents to buy SIM cards capable of making voice calls. This means you can only get data-only SIMs. Uh, personally, I don't mind that much, but the problem is some of the voice SIMs have good deals on data plans, which you can't actually buy because they have voice and you're not allowed to buy voice SIMs. So one workaround is to get someone in Japan to buy a SIM for you, but then if you're caught doing nefarious things on the airwaves, they are going to be held responsible. So I don't think that unless somebody trusts you very well, like you're not going to have a random stranger offer to buy a SIM card for you. But what's, what's the exact reason for, I guess, the Japan government to do so? So I think the idea is they don't want people buying up burner phones for use with the Yakuza and organized crime and all that stuff. 
Oh, I see. That seems to be the most obvious thing, uh, looking at how the words were worded in the regulation. Um, yeah, and I, it would make sense when most of the convention were based on phone numbers, but now that everything is moving to the internet and you can still buy those SIMs, it's kind of a yeah. miss. But it's good for you, people that are tra- planning to travel to uh, Japan. Yeah. Um, I'm going to put a link in the show notes to this crazy-ass wiki I found yesterday. Um, I did not know this existed until yesterday, but it's been immensely helpful for my next trip. Uh, there is apparently a wiki called the Prepaid Data SIM Card Wiki. Who knew? And there Ooh. is a massive page on Japan there that lists every single option that is available to you. Um, and I think if you are interested in connectivity, you should refer to that page because there were options there that I didn't even know existed. And some of them may be way better for you than they are for me. Um, is that a, web, a wiki about like prepaid plans around the world? Yeah, each country has a page. Yeah, I think I've looked at this one when I went to Sweden. I had no idea this existed, but it's amazing. And uh, I can recommend one thing, which is B-Mobile. Uh, I've used B-Mobile every other year I've gone to Japan. Uh, so I can vouch that it works. It's reasonably priced. Uh, now they have this thing called the Visitor SIM, which seems like an even better deal than what I was using previously. I was using uh, a SIM card they had called the U300, which no longer exists. Um, but the visitor sim, what's great about that is unlike previous vis- visitor sims from B-Mobile in the past, those you couldn't charge up again. So you had to either like buy another one and they were limited to something like 14 days or whatever. Uh, the great thing about the new B-Mobile uh, visitor sim is you can recharge it on the web now yourself. So you don't have to carry like seven sims with you uh, if you're staying a really long time. So that can be a good option. Uh, this time I'm going to be using eConnect, which does similar things, but I think they have a much more streamlined setup process. Um, and this is where I have to talk about the networks and the LTE bands, because this is important. Uh, Apple.com slash iPhone slash LTE is a super important web page that I refer to a lot when traveling, because it lists all of the bands that your iPhone SKU is capable of handling because an iPhone purchased in North America does not have access to the LTE bands in Japan unless you have an iPhone SE because the iPhone SE is the best phone. Um, oh, whoa, whoa. why is that? There's only one SKU for the iPhone SE worldwide. Oh, shit, I forgot about that. You're right. Yeah. All right. And by the way, this page, before I continue, this page is also super useful when you plan to buy an unlocked iPhone. Yeah, it goes hand in hand. Um, yeah, yeah. yeah. Of course, you're going to need an unlock iPhone if you do this anyway. Although I have heard that if you're using a Docomo uh, MVNO for your prepaid SIM, if your carrier has roaming deals with uh, Docomo, you can use it on a locked phone. I-, I would not believe this normally. Like It sounds super sketchy, but apparently it works. So your mileage may vary. Uh, but yeah, so... You're not going to get LTE unless you have an iPhone SE, basically, uh, on a North American iPhone, which sort of sucks. Uh, what especially sucks is that that means you're going to be stuck on their FOMA network. Uh, FOMA is the word that Docomo gives for their GSM 3G service. It's very important to understand that Docomo was not a GSM carrier. So they had to build up, like, spring up all of a sudden this tiny 3G network to get the iPhone 
when they wanted to get it because they were bleeding market share to all of the other, well, to SoftBank more than anything else. Um, so they had to build up this 3G network. And the problem is the 3G network is not as vast as the LTE network. And that means that you are likely to get poorer coverage than you are expecting from the top Japanese carrier. It's going to be fine in the Tokyo metro area. If you try to venture out of the Tokyo metro area, your mileage may vary. Um, the other thing is a lot of the Docomo MVNOs do this weird shit where they don't report the signal strength correctly in the status bar, and I have no idea why. Um, oh, yeah, I remember you sending this. This is also the case on Android, by the way. Like, I know the guy who makes the kernel patches for it to actually show up correctly for rooted Android phones. Um, so, yeah, strange stuff, um, but it is a thing to take into consideration. Unfortunately, well, fortunately, if you have an LTE phone, uh, Docomo's LTE network is the best one of the bunch. Unfortunately, for people who don't own an iPhone SE, uh, like most of the MVNOs are Docomo MVNOs, and you're going to be stuck on the FOMA network. There are some options for SoftBank, uh, which is compatible directly with uh, GSM iPhones since the very beginning, if it's unlocked, of course. Um, but they only offer service to foreigners if you're at an airport SoftBank store, which is limiting. Um, so unless you're staying for 14 days or less, it's not really an option. Again, refer to that page because all of the options are listed there and it changes rather frequently. So the options that are good today might not exist soon. Um, so yeah, one last tip, which is nothing to do with actually getting connected, but is something that you can do with your connected phone. And that is install the Yurekuru app on your phone that's y-u-r-e-k-u-r-u it's in the of course you'll put the link in the show notes. yeah it'll be in the show notes it's on the north american app store as well this is a very important app because it's an app that warns you of earthquakes shortly before they happen and that can be super useful if you're not used to earthquakes where you live uh you're probably going to want to set a threshold of level three earthquakes um and Level 3 does not mean magnitude 3. Uh, Japan uses a different scale, of course, uh, as the rest of the world. Um, and I'll put a link to the scale in the show notes as well. Uh, you want to put that threshold for level 3. Otherwise, your phone is constantly going to get spammed because there are earthquakes literally all the fucking time in Japan. <laughs> <laughs> so that's it for connectivity. Anything uh, I'm oh, leaving yeah. out? Uh, not anything you're leaving out. So you mentioned a couple of options uh, that you need to do before you leave, and I think that's the solution you've been using uh, well, okay, for most yeah, of your trips. I forgot to mention this. So only one of the options on that giant page, uh, prepaid data SIM card wiki thing, only one of those will actually ship you SIM cards to your house before you leave. All of the other ones will ship either to an airport or to your hotel when you arrive. So that is something to take into consideration. I think it sort of sucks big time that you can't just order it like in Canada and have the SIM card in hand when you're going through the airport. Because then the amount of time you have to spend setting it up is rather minimal. And you can be over the Pacific and change your SIM card. And then you know that when you touch the ground, you're ready to go for the most part. Um, unfortunately, only eConnect does this. And eConnect is doing this only in the U.S. right now. Uh, you can buy their SIM cards through U.S. Amazon, but they will not ship to Canada. I checked. Um, so I'm having a friend in the U.S. ship the SIM card to me. Uh, 
but uh yeah like previously i've had to go through friends in japan who ordered the sim cards for me and shipped them to me ahead of time so i would have them ready to go when i would get off the plane um another thing that i did actually forget to mention is most if not all of the mvnos require you to set an apn on your phone you can get royally fucked uh if well oh yeah i also forgot another thing so i'll add that afterwards um yeah so keep a bookmark to the page with the APN setting file on your phone so that when you land at the airport, once you've put your SIM in there, you can just get on airport Wi-Fi and get the APN file on your phone. Uh, because otherwise, you're going to have to get to some other Wi-Fi somewhere else and do it, basically. Uh, otherwise, the phone doesn't know how to talk to the network. It's a pain in the ass, but that's life with MVNOs. Uh, certain companies, including eConnect, will have apps. That oh, you by can the way, reg- oh sorry, but by the way, regarding those APN settings, I would even suggest screenshotting the web page, because in most cases, if you need to access a web page, the web page might not load if you don't have the correct settings. Well, so, that's why I send on Wi-Fi. Oh, oh, you can use Wi-Fi, but to be safe, and that's what I've been using when I'm uh, traveling. Is since it might be problematic to go on the airport wi-fi or stuff like that just screenshot the web page and like make sure you have our pdf version of the instructions well uh, on your phone I, to make it easier i agree like it would be good except the problem is like sometimes i've landed in japan and the button to go manually change your apn settings is not there and you have to install absolutely their provisioning profile or whatever and there was no way to go manually change it oh yeah that's strange because that apn setting is kind of there's something in the phone that decides whether it's hidden or not, and it's uh, kind of a big black box, and you don't know when it happens. You're right. Yeah, so MVNOs, they're a little wonky sometimes, but keep a bookmark to that page and a screenshot just to make sure. And then when you're in the airport, just go set your SIM up and then uh, turn off the Wi-Fi and see if it works, and then you're ready to go. Um, the other thing I forgot. Find my iPhone. This is very important. (laughs) It was, I've mentioned this on previous episodes, but I need to mention it again because you're going to get fucked. If you have a SIM card, um, you're going to want to close find my iPhone before you swap it out. And the reason for this is you're going to be asked to log into iCloud when you put in the new SIM. And that works great if you can connect to Wi-Fi that doesn't have a portal page. Narita Airport Wi-Fi has a portal page, so you can't actually see the portal page because the phone is in an inactivated sp- uh, inactivated state, so it can't bring up Safari because it's inactivated, which means you're screwed. And you can't get to the APN settings to configure the APN because your phone is in an inactivated state. So what you have to do is, before swapping SIM cards, and ideally, like, I do this before I get on the plane, is turn off Find My iPhone. I know it is a security concern, but otherwise, like, you're going to have trouble when you get to the other end and try to use your SIM. Uh, And you can re-enable it afterwards, and then don't forget to do the same thing in the other direction. It's funny because you've been bitten by that problem for, what, a year or two? Like Since uh, iOS 7 came out? And... Never run into this problem since iOS 7. Like, I've been to US on uh, MVNO based on T-Mobile. Yeah. And you just pop in up, 
I think my phone though was an airplane mode, which I think what you will, it's something you've done when you're on the air. Yeah, it still pops up like, hey, do you want to log into iCloud like when I'm in airplane mode? And I'm like, well, can't you see that airplane mode means I don't have connectivity right now? And like, if you put your old SIM back in while you're in that state, it'll be, oh, this is the SIM I'm used to. Cool, I can go back to being activated now. Like, it's really strange. Like, this entire workflow is super strange. And it's clear to me that Apple, when they're designing their phones and stuff, they have like this golden path where they assume like when you travel abroad, you're just going to pay the roaming fee and big fucking deal. Right. Uh, and like these experiences are so bad, but like you do it because it's the same thing to do. I think the golden path, seriously, for Apple employees, from what we heard from Don Melton is, oh, don't worry about roaming fees because Apple is paying for it. So. Who cares about buying a new phone or buying a new SIM and making sure that you're not uh, paying like $100 per one megabyte because you're roaming and If Apple nobody cares. wants to pay my roaming fees, I will gladly accept this arrangement. <laughs> good. Okay, I'll, next are up. Are we moving out of technology now? Because I want to, go to get to the good stuff. Does the good stuff mean trains? Because we're trains. <laughs> okay, good. Okay, so... Is it train simulators? No, it's just trains. Okay. Um, so there are several different train companies in Japan. And for that reason, smart cards, such as Suica or Pasmo, are incredibly useful. And for super technical information on all of these, you should listen to the best episode of Limitless Possibility ever, episode two, which has interminable follow-up, where we discuss them in depth. Um, but yeah, so in the Tokyo metro area, these cards are either going to be Suica, which is the name to the, uh, for the card that is owned by JR East, which is the national, uh, railway company, or Pasmo, which is sort of owned by the consortium of the other railways, if we may say so. Um, most transit smart cards are interoperable with equivalent cards from other regions and other companies. So even if you decide to travel outside Tokyo metro area, your Suica is going to work, probably. Uh, <laughs> are you sure or not? I say probably because, like, I went on a magnetic levitation train in Nagoya and, like, they didn't support Suica. But, like, everything else did. Um, and, like... I've had, uh, I was researching this episode to see like which places take Suica and all of the places where I knew that I couldn't use Suica before, you can now use Suica at. So they've gotten a lot better at it. Um, most importantly, Suica Pasmo supported by most railways in the metro area. Uh, yeah, that's a note that I wrote before I had researched that basically all of the railways support it now. Uh, so the way it works, it's a prepaid balance card. Uh, you can load cash onto it. And you can use it to get on the train or to make purchases within train stations. Super useful. You tap the gate at the start and at the end stations and the fare calculation is done automatically for you behind the scenes and it deduces that amount from your card. If you happen to run over the amount of money that is on your card, I think you're denied uh, getting out of the second gate, but you can use a fare correction machine, which is right next to the gate, to pay the leftover amount and then you'll be able to pass through. Uh, so that's good. This saves you the hassle of having to buy a paper ticket using a ticket machine every single time you want to get on transit. Um, so it's super useful. Um, and as you'll see in the next section, uh, you're probably going to want this regardless of what you do in Japan with regards to travel, because there are other options that are open for you. So the following option is only available for trains on the JR network. Um, 
and it's called the Japan Rail Pass. So for a fixed period of 7, 14, or 21 days, you can get the Japan Rail Pass, which gives you unlimited travel on almost all the JR trains, including bullet trains. This is a remarkable deal if you're doing a lot of traveling within Japan. It ranges from $300 for the 7-day uh, version to $600 for the 21-day version. Um, generally, if you want to get on the bullet train at all, you're looking at like a $200 round trip. So if you're looking to do like two bullet train trips, it's worthwhile just there. Um, it's only purchasable, purchasable from outside Japan using select vendors, which are approved by JR. And starting in March, there's going to be a pilot program for a few months that allows people who are in Japan to buy the pass, but at an extra markup. Of course, you're going to have to present your passport uh, and visa and all that stuff anyway to ensure that you're allowed uh, that you're not a, you're not someone who lives in Japan who just basically wants a deal on bullet trains. Uh, so yeah, the, the big catch is if you get a Japan rail pass, you cannot use the electronic gates. You have to go to the manned gate at JR stations to get aboard the train. It's faster than using the ticket machine, but it's slower than using something like Suica. Um, there are also regional rail passes which are offered that are uh, restricted to a certain area. And in the case of the Tokyo Pass, it also allows access to certain private railways inclusive in that. Um, but the general consensus is that those passes aren't as good a value as the full Japan Rail Pass. And really, Japan Rail Pass is something you should get if you want to travel the whole country. Um, but if you're just staying in the Tokyo metro area, it's unlikely you're going to spend more in fa train fare than uh, during that time period than the price of the thing. So you probably should just get a Suica card. And like I mentioned, the Suica card applies to all railways, basically. So you should have one anyway, because if you go like three quarters of your route and then you get to a station which is not owned by JR, well, too bad, because you don't have... You, you can only get on JR trains, so you still need a Suica card or something as a fallback, or you can, of course, buy a paper ticket, but paper tickets are really confusing if you don't know what the fuck you're doing. So there's that. Um, if you're coming in to Narita Airport, this is specific to getting out of Narita Airport by train. The easiest way out of Narita into the Tokyo area is to ride something called the Narita Express. Uh, it's a train that basically just goes Narita, Tokyo, and then a couple other stations, and then goes Yokohama, Ofuna, a couple other stations in Kanagawa Prefecture. But basically, it has so few stops on the line that it's just an express to the major locations. Um, if you're staying for 14 days or less, you can buy what's called an, a next Tokyo round trip ticket at the JR Travel Center, or the green counters that they have um, at train stations, which makes the price of the round trip 4,000 yen. This is a big deal because normally it costs 6,040 yen or 9,240 yen, depending on where you're going, uh, where the final destination is. So if you are staying for 14 days or less, this is something that you should consider. Um you should go look it up on the JR website because I have found that next specific products uh, and packages have been changing a ton over the past few years. So I don't know if in March they're going to replace it because like for the past few years, they've replaced the next product in March to something else. Uh, so it's possible that if you're listening to this in like April, well, maybe this doesn't exist anymore, uh, which is unfortunate because 
the first time I went to Japan, they had this thing called Suica Plus Next, which is exactly what I wanted, uh, which is this reduced rate for the round trip ticket. And they also gave you a Suica card uh, with some money already on it. And that is incredibly useful to just get that at the airport when you're leaving and then you're all set for the entire trip. Fortunately, they don't offer that anymore, which sucks. Uh, so lastly, I should talk about apps uh, for train travel. I've been hearing incredibly good things about Apple Maps Transit integration from Japanese people, even from people who are living literally in the middle of nowhere. So maybe check that out if you have an iPhone. Google Maps should be okay. I'm not sure how well how good it is because as far as I know, no one I know uses it. Uh, they all use other applications that are in Japanese uh, to get their transit information. There is one of these apps that I would recommend, which is the Yahoo Transit app, mostly because it's free and also because it's super useful. Uh, it has a super handy widget, which can show you the last train home for your current location. So if you're out clubbing somewhere and you want to know what the last train home is and you're not planning on pulling an all-nighter, uh, you can just press one button and it automatically gets you the last train home for your current location, which is useful. Uh, or there's another one which just tells you, like, tell me how to get back home if you're lost. Good shit. That, w <laughs> that would be nice in general in any, like, transit app to have just, like, I'm out with friends. What's the last time, like, the last time I could leave to use public transit? And especially in Montreal here when uh, the transit system, uh, especially with the metro, shuts down in the weekend around like one and two in the morning so either you after that you take the taxi which you don't want to take the taxi or you just leave early yeah it's an incredibly good app uh the problem is you're going to need to know a little bit of japanese to actually be able to use this and the station names are all in japanese like there's no english localization ah, localization at all uh, which can be an issue, of course, for first-time tourists who have no Japanese knowledge. But if you know Japanese, this is the app to get. Um, unfortunately, like most of the other apps that exist for Japanese transit are all paid apps. Uh, so like those are the top three. Um, but I have to give an honorable mention to trains.jp, which is a website. Uh, it unfortunately, it used to have an offline phone app, which Offline is super useful if you're worried that your connectivity might suddenly disappear, uh, which, I mean, like, the first time I went to Japan was something I was worried about because I had no idea if my SIM was actually going to work. Uh, so Trains.jp had a great offline phone app, and it got pulled from the app store last week when uh, they were cleaning out the old apps that nobody had maintained. Oh, no. <laughs> so, oh, no. So Seriously. that's gone. Uh, oh, crap. But you can still go to their website, which unfortunately won't work <laughs> offline, but... If you're an English speaker, it is the clearest way to get uh, train information for Japan. Um, so that also works really well. Uh, you have to know like station names. So that's the advantage that Apple Maps and Google Maps has. Uh, you can just use start address, destination address, whereas trains.jp is really start station, end station, which you sort of have to know a little bit more to actually be able to do stuff. So that's it for train travel. Any questions? Yeah, uh, just regarding Apple Maps, would it be the first year where Apple Maps is available and you'll be in Japan? Especially the Apple Maps Transit stuff. Apple Maps Transit like literally la uh, launched a couple months ago, weeks ago? 
I, I mean, it's time oh, is yeah, ticking yeah, yeah. so fast. So yeah, it's the first time it's I'll be able latest, to use it right. for transit. I oh, yeah, really, never mind really it. love right. Yahoo Transit, and I'm so used to using it because like Yahoo Transit has some crazy good options. Like you can say, give me the cheapest route for uh, this, or give me the route that has the least transfers, or give me the route that's the fastest. So you can optimize for those things, which is really useful. And I'm just really used to the way it works. I'm probably going to be using it because I want to try the Apple Watch integration. Um, Yahoo Transit does have a watch app, but it sucks because it doesn't really do anything that the phone app does. It's just like a clock that shows you uh, notches on the clock uh, that shows you where the trains are coming, which is not particularly useful. Um, so, yeah, I'm going to be using Apple Maps Transit uh, generally on... Oh, that's something else I should probably mention. Uh, generally on Docomo and VNOs that I've used in the past, I have not been able to get Google Maps to load on the 3G network. Maybe it's different on LTE. I hope it is better on LTE. I have never been able to get Google Maps to load ever since like Google took control of the Google Maps app. Uh, so I've always been using Apple Maps, and Apple Maps is fine as long as you know the addresses and don't rely on the names of places. Uh, so that is an important consideration if you're considering map apps. Do you have any suggestion of local map apps? I would honestly just recommend Apple Maps. Okay. Oh, that's good to know. That's, it's, re was, it's really good. Like, if you know the addresses, it's really good. Yeah, it was more like mentioning one for, like, if you don't know the addresses or, like, you forgot the addresses or you... Use Foursquare. That's what I was using. Okay. Yeah. So a combo of Foursquare and Apple Maps. Yeah. Will do trick. Like you can tap the thing to get directions within Foursquare. So if you know the location, it's probably on Foursquare because Japan loves Foursquare. Uh, and you can just click get directions and you're in Apple Maps, but then you're going by the address. So it's already good. Good. Next up, general day planning. Uh, this is like the smallest section I have in this thing. Uh, <laughs> so the first year I went to Japan was the only year I sort of went for tourist reasons. Uh, the rest of the time I was there for playing video games and for meeting with friends. So that was sort of cool. Um, I, I love that playing video game was first and meeting with friends was second. But well, my friends sad. have jobs. So they, they I mean, percentage-wise, more time was spent playing video games. Uh So generally when I go do tourist stuff, uh, I split my days into three segments, morning, afternoon, evening. This probably sounds fucking stupid to say out loud, but uh, what I mean to say is you can spend each of those three parts of the day in a different part of town. And because of how dense Tokyo is and how effective the transit system is, you are probably going to pull it off. Uh, so like if you just want to do a whirlwind tour of all of the stuff, you can pack your days with three major parts of town per day and do it comfortably. Uh, so take that into consideration once my recommendations for places, uh, which are coming soon, I promise, uh, once I list those up. So what you're saying here is you could, maybe not the, it wouldn't be the optimal route, but you could go from one way uh, on in the morning to be on one side of the city and in the afternoon to be on the other side of the city and still have somewhat of like maybe a bit suboptimal, but somewhat have a good plan. And that would be easily feasible. If you're, if you're staying within Tokyo, there's no worry. You can do three parts of towns that are completely on opposite sides of the city uh, in a whole day. Hmm. Nice. Okay, uh, this is the last part of the sort of FAQ slash good tips uh, section before we get into real recommendations of shit to do. Because so far, we've only been talking about like stuff to consider about what's different in Japan. Uh, and one of those things is shopping and transactions. 
Very important. Japan is still a cash society. Uh, so if you're expecting to use your credit card everywhere, well, no, not going to work. Uh, cards like Suica and Pasmo are more ubiquitous than credit cards. We have talked about this in the past. Uh, so you can use Suica and Pasmo basically anywhere in a train station because that's the whole point of the card. Um, but if you're outside a train station, uh, there are good chances it will also be accepted. The problem is like there is an upper limit for how much money you can put on Suica slash Pasmo. Um, so you're probably going to want to carry cash anyway. Um, it, well, can you remind our listener what's the upper limit? I'm honestly not sure. I think it's $250 equivalent ish. Okay. Good to know. Uh, so you're not going to go buy a TV with a Suica card. Let's just say, uh, no, but it's good. It's good enough to travel plus buy. F- food during the day yeah yeah definitely um if you need more money tips for atms uh you never thought you'd hear this on this podcast uh it would be really good if you could find the nearest post office because post offices are the best atms uh japanese post offices have atms which support a huge range of international debit cards uh and this is super useful i go to uh, well i've only ever gone to japanese post offices for atm stuff because they are that good just be warned, uh, normally those machines are super quiet, but the second you press the English button, the machine starts yelling at you as if you don't know what the fuck you're doing because the voice gets enabled for the entire menu on every menu and the volume is very high. Um, oh, wow. So if you get embarrassed by loud noises that announce that there is a foreigner using the ATM, <laughs> then play Animal Crossing and learn the kanji for the Japanese menu, and then you won't have to press on it. Uh, joking aside, uh, there are also convenience stores on basically every street corner in Japan that you can use ATMs at. Um, the problem is that the range of cards will differ from uh, from brand of convenience store to another. Generally, 7-Eleven has had the best international coverage for cards. Uh, just check the logos next to the ATM sighing uh, in the thing because like one year 7-Eleven decided we're not going to support Plus, which is what Interact is based on, and I couldn't use my cards there. Um, and of course, if you can use those ATMs, don't waste your time going to tourist trap currency exchange offices because they will charge you a hefty surcharge. All right, are you ready to actually go places now? I am ready. I was waiting for that for the last... Uh... Oh, that's okay. But I was waiting for that. Okay, so um, tell me what everybody loves to do when they travel. See places? Go to places? Exp- no, experience local stuff. God damn it, you're not saying what I want you to say. Oh, observation crap. decks. Everybody loves a fucking good observation deck. Oh, that's true. No, that's, that's totally true. Okay, I, so here's the top three observation decks in... <laughs> Tokyo. <laughs> okay, next time maybe you need to be a bit more specific. It's something you like to do in the mountains or in the eye-level area. Not even. It's just you just want to get in the heights. Uh, so Tokyo Skytree is the newest of the bunch. It is the new hotness, as the kids say. Uh, it's the second tallest structure in the world. Uh, Ooh. Of course, since it's super new, like I saw it in 2013, I think it opened, and I was there like a couple of weeks before and ju- when I got lost in the residential uh, place that was when I saw it basically no you by the way you didn't get lost you were just exploring residential areas oh, of s- Tokyo sorry yeah <laughs> uh, so yeah when I was not lost uh, I saw the Tokyo Skytree and it is super amazing uh, 
Like, I, I was relatively close to it. It was pretty amazing. Uh, the problem is, again, it's the newest. Uh, queues are fairly long for it, so just be prepared for that. Let's say you're not a fan of waiting for the Tokyo Skytree. There's also Tokyo Tower, which has been featured prominently in 1990s anime, which is probably why you're interested in it. Uh, <laughs> I should probably That's go see point. Tokyo Tower this year. I'm surprised I haven't done it yet. But uh, You haven't done it yet? Uh, no, I haven't. Um, so, wow. Yeah, there's a lot of stuff I haven't done because I basically did all the touristy stuff the first time I was in Japan and then never again. Uh, so that's, yeah, this year I'm going to try to do more touristy stuff. Uh, try to take advantage of it before 2020. Uh, so yeah, Tokyo Tower, it still exists. Lines aren't as long because Skytree sort of stole their thunder. Uh, so very recommended. Lovely to see. I've only seen it from afar, but it's lovely. Uh, Last up, if you're a cheapskate or really hate waiting in line, uh, there's Tokyo Metropolitan Government Building, which is City Hall, basically. It's a great option because it has viewing options that are free and open to the public and have a great view of the city. So those are the top three observation decks. Uh, I have also... Okay, so I have a fun story. Let's go with the fun story. I love, I love those. Yeah. Are you getting lost in this one? Not really. Uh, um, I'm getting owned fun. by Flash, though. Uh, so... Ooh first year I went to Japan, I wanted to go to an observation deck, uh, but the lines were fucking long everywhere. Uh, and I somehow forgot about the Metropolitan Government Building or something. So I read somewhere on the internet that there was this place ca- called Carrot Tower. And Carrot Tower is the office building where Game Freak, which makes Pokemon, does. In fact, Carrot Tower, I believe, is in Cerulean City. Uh, no, Solidon City in the red, green, blue... Uh, yeah, red, green, blue. Red, blue, yellow... Uh, original generation of Pokemon. And there's an observation deck on the top floor. So I was like, oh, cool. I'll just go there. Apparently the view is really great. Problem is, the observation deck was in re- uh, in renovation, and I did not know this because the notice was in a Flash plugin thing that I couldn't see on my phone. Oops. <laughs> okay, that's a fun story, Indian. Okay, let's get to the next part of town. Uh, so, yeah, the next few things are going to be about parts of towns. Uh... Starting with Akihabara, can't not mention it. It's the center of the otaku slash nerd community. It has tons of stores packed with anime, manga, and video games. There are lots of cute girls handing out flyers to maid cafes, which you may or may not choose to go to. Uh, personally, I find it kind of overrated, but if you're a nerd, you can't not go. Like, you sort of have to go there at least once. Um, a lot of what you'll find in Akiba stores you can find elsewhere, especially if it's new stuff. Where it really shines is for collectors. But of course, you should be prepared to play collector prices for rare things with an extra premium because in recent years, Akihabara has been swarmed with tourists and people have noticed, so they're taking advantage of it by charging more for stuff. Uh, if you're into collectibles and would like another part of town to go explore uh, to get similar variety of collectibles at slightly lower prices, Nakano Broadway is really good for that. Um, video game collectors in particular should probably be looking elsewhere. And I know what you're thinking. You're like, but Akihabara is like the capital of video games. How can I not buy my retro games there? Uh, used game stock in... Akihabara has been drying up a lot over recent years. Like, the big shops that everybody had tons and tons of pictures of in their features about Japan in the past are now barren and have, like, empty shelves because everyone is buying all the retro games. Um, and what's left there has gone up significantly in price. Uh, so you should go look 
elsewhere. Uh, if you want to hear about other places, you could go look for video games at. Um, well, A, go to Book Offs because those are great. Uh, Book Off is a big chain of used stuff. Uh, and there is one in Akihabara and their prices are generally pretty much the same across the entire chain. Uh, so that's good. Um, or go listen to an episode of Back in My Play with, uh, where the host basically takes you on a tour of retro game shopping in Japan, which can be useful if you're into that stuff. Uh, of course, there are tons of arcades in Akihabara. Uh, I mean, like, there are so many Club Sega arcades on the main street that I literally can't count them. I think there are, like, six different distinct Sega arcades on the main street. Um, and I would recommend one of them, but I'm not sure how to tell you which one it is, uh, so I won't. Uh, and I'll tell you these top three arcades to visit uh, in Akihabara. Hirose Entertainment Yard, also known as Hey is the home to the hardcore shoot-em-up and fighter community in Akihabara. It is a wonderful, wonderful place if you love fighting games, that is, but you're probably going to get your ass kicked by the locals. Uh, and it has basically the full lineup of cave shoot-em-ups and most of shoot-em-up history basically archived there. So if you are a big shmup or fighter fan or a fan of card games for six-year-old girls also there's a floor devoted to that but is only open to adults uh you can go play those at hirose entertainment yard uh try amusement tower is the home to akihabara's beatmania 2dx community and also houses tons of other retro games uh so it's worthwhile to go check out and tokyo leisureland akihabara 2 which is inside the don quixote department store is the home to the DDR community in Japan. Like, that's the center of their operations. So if you're a big DDR fan, go check out the community there. Um, more Akihabara tips uh, before we move on to the next thing. Don't be surprised. There is a shocking amount of pornography and sex toy shops in Akihabara. I know. I've been to all of them. Um, <laughs> oh, my goodness. So don't be shocked. Uh, it's generally obvious from outside that that's what they are. But... Like, don't be surprised if you randomly wander into something and it turns out to be a sex toy shop. Uh, Yodabashi Camera is a widespread chain of electronic stores in Japan. But Akihabara's is apparently the biggest in the entire chain. And I think it's also the biggest electronic store in the world. And you have not experienced electronic stores until you have been to a Japanese electronic stores. So you should go hang out there and play with all the fucking gadgets. It's amazing. Like, sometimes I just go to Yodobashi and spend the entire day there playing with shit. Uh, it's tons of fun. Um, if you're trying to plan when to go to Akihabara, uh, I don't think there's much to gain by going to Akihabara at nighttime. So I would recommend going t during the afternoon. Uh, morning is fine as well, except, uh, I should note that stuff usually opens in Japan around 10 a.m., so, like, don't show up too early. Uh, and Akihabara starts getting really crowded around 4 or 5 p.m. as people start coming back from their day jobs and decide to go have fun in Akihabara, so take that into consideration as well. Is there any kind of, uh, club or more, like, light nightlife? stuff to do in Akihabara or it's more like so Akihabara has Mogura which is probably the most popular club for anime fans uh they mostly spin anime music and stuff uh and that is in Akihabara it is sort of hard to find it's a little less hard to find now because they've sort of redesigned it to be more obvious but like 
you can't tell unless you look at this tiny well previously you could only tell because there was this tiny sign next to the door that said mogra uh but like they are very used to having lots of foreigners uh come over and visit because they sort of have a reputation in the anime clubbing scene um so that is sort of the big club that there is in akihabara i don't know of many others in akihabara though okay that's good to know okay next up is odaiba um Big props to friend of the show, Richard Whitaker, uh, in the UK, who has provided basically the rough outline for what I'm going to say here, because uh, I asked him for advice because he lived in Japan for many years uh, previously, and he was a big fan of, of Odaiba, so uh, he gave me basically his notes on what to do and experience here, and I've gotten permission to share them with you on the show today. Uh, Odaiba, you are a fucking moron if you go to Odaiba at any time other than nighttime. So I would start going towards Odaiba around sunset-ish. Um, and there is a specific path you need to take to experience Odaiba, top-tier Odaiba, okay? What you want to do is you want to go to the JR Shimbashi station and get onto the Yurikamome, which is a fully automated transit system. And this was one of the places where previously they didn't support Suica or Pasmo and you had to buy a paper ticket, but now you don't have to worry about it anymore because they support Spark Cards. Uh, Yurika Mome is, in general, this super amazing automated transit system that takes you through... It's almost like a roller coaster through the city. It's sort of amazing. Uh, and for that reason, you want to sit in the front seat of the train if possible. Uh, either the first or second train... And you're going to be amazed at the view on this thing. Um, try to pay enough attention uh, to the stations, though, because you're going to want to get off at Daiba Station. Uh, Daiba Station is where you can walk towards a large shopping mall called Tokyo Aqua City. But outside of, uh, of Aqua City, you will have a fantastic view of the Tokyo Bay and a replica of the Statue of Liberty for some reason. Uh, why not, I guess? Uh, Aqua City has some great restaurants if you're hungry. Uh, there's some cool stuff to go see in there as well. Uh, lots of fashion shops as well. Uh, generally, Japanese malls seem to be heavily skewed towards having fashion stuff. Uh, not that ours don't, but like at a heavier proportion, I would say. Um, and Aqua City, from my memory, also has a movie theater and occasionally has exhibitions for various pop culture stuff that's popular right now. So when I went, I think it was... Uh, maybe an Ultraman movie exhibition with like, uh, wax models of different things, characters from the movie or stuff like that. So there's cool stuff to see there. Um, you can walk through Aqua City to get to Odaiba Dex, which is one of my favorite malls in the world. Um, it's shaped like a ship. And, uh, if you go outside, uh, at the back of the mall, there's this entire, uh, wooden deck that you can walk on. And it's absolutely amazing. I've got great photos of this place. I should link them in the show notes. Um, it's absolutely stunning views of Tokyo Bay. Uh, you just have to go there. Uh, inside Odaiba Dex, there's Sega Joy Polis, uh, which I guess now has been sold to a Chinese company and no longer Sega, but they still use Sega franchises and also Capcom to some degree. Like, I think that's where the, uh, the Phoenix Wright theater thing interactive theater uh exhibit was and stuff like oh, that oh yeah uh it's nice joy Palace is basically an indoor amusement park um so there's a bunch of crazy shit to do there um and there's also a floor or two of odaiba decks that 
basically tries to recreate the feeling of old-timey Japanese shopping districts. And like, the, well, I think one of them is the 1930s and one of them is more like 1980s-ish. Uh, so that's cool. There's a lot of really cool thematic stuff there. And I think one of, one of the floors, the 1980s one, has like retro arcade games, which don't fit the period they're trying to emulate, but I don't care because they're still good arcade games, uh, including a train simulator last time I went. If you walk through decks to the other side, uh, you're going to get to Odaiba Kaihin Koen Station. Um, that station is not important. You should take the bridge that's under it towards the giant Ferris wheel. Uh, and what is around that giant Ferris wheel? Well, there's this other grouping of malls and stuff called Pallet Town, uh, which is super funny to people who played Pokemon, uh, but I don't think the Japanese people are in on the joke because that's not like what it was called in the Japanese version, of course. Um, so there's a Toyota showroom there called Toyota MegaWeb that has an insane exhibition of Toyota cars. Uh, there are some race cars there, there as well. Uh, if you're a fan of the AU, uh, racing car that they had, uh, it's there generally. And I really love that car. Um, and I think they also have like special edition. I don't remember if this is a Toyota or a Nissan. I think it might be Nissan because that would make more sense. Maybe at both. Uh, Gran Turismo licensed driving simulators. Ooh. Yeah. Um, there's also Tokyo Leisureland, uh, Pallet Town, which is a huge arcade that can be found under the Ferris wheel. Um, you can also go ride the Ferris wheel itself. It's called a Daikan Rancha, and it's the largest one. In, well, it was the largest one in the world until the London Eye opened in March 2000. Uh, I really like Bayside Ferris wheels, uh, so this is cool if you're into that stuff. And next to that, there's also a really cool mall called Venus Fort with absolutely lovely fountains. And the entire mall is themed to look like Venice. Um, and there's a day and night cycle throughout your trip through the, I think it's like every couple minutes, uh, there's a day night cycle. Uh, so the lighting dims up and down. And it's really neat atmosphere to be in. Uh, to be honest, most of the stores in there are catered towards women. Uh, so it's not super exciting to go shop there necessarily if you're a man, but the atmosphere is absolutely amazing. And once you're done in Pallet Town, you can go to Aomi Station, which is right next to the uh, entrance to Venus Fort, which you can ride all the way back to Shimbashi and then get back uh, to where you were before. So Odaiba is absolutely gorgeous at night. Uh, it's one of the big date spots in Tokyo, uh, and you should probably go experience it, even if you're alone. Like, it's cool. Uh, it's really cool. But again, you are absolutely missing out if you're going any other time than nighttime because you're not getting the full experience. And I know some friends who have done this and I have shamed them so much, uh, because they really deserve it for screwing up like that. One last note before we move on to the next part of town. Tokyo Big Site is a major convention center. It's where the Nintendo Switch event is going to be held, in fact. And it's in Odaiba. And Yannick will report about it. Yeah, surely. Uh, it's also where Comic Cat is held. Uh, if you're a big anime fan, um, or manga fan, you can go buy comics at Comic Cat, uh, for like f- three to four days, uh, every six months. You can conveniently walk to Tokyo Big Site from Pallet Town if you want, or you can ride directly to, uh, Kokusai Tenjijo Station on the Rinkai Line if you want to get there directly. Tokyo Big Site is the only circumstance in which being in Dodaiba during daytime is permissible. So you've been warned. Uh, so let's move on to Shibuya. Shibuya is impressive at any time of day. Um, like, you've probably seen Shibuya Crossing 
on TV or in movies before because it's sort of like the Times Square of Japan. Like it's become cliche to say Times Square of Japan because everybody says it, but it's true. Um, and you're probably going to want to experience it. Uh, to be fair, it's basically equally impressive on during the daytime or during nighttime because the spectacle is really the amount of people that are clustered at this giant crossing and not so much the lights, although the lights are amazing as well. Um, if you want to experience the Shibuya crossing, you are going to want to go to Shibuya Station Hachiko Exit. This is if you're running, um, this is if you're riding on a JR line because that is where the exit is. It's in the JR Shibuya Station and there are like four or five different Shibuya stations. Shibuya, of course, because that's how things work. Um, so yeah. Shibuya is a shopping district for the 20 something year old Tokyoites. Um, it's very fashionable. Lots of fashion brands have presences in Shibuya down what is called Center Guy, which is basically the main street of Shibuya. For women, the major hubs, uh, are Shibuya 109 and Marui, which is, it, it's a play on words. It's spelled 0101, um, because Maru is circle and E represents the one. So that's what it is. Um, and they're large fashion-oriented shopping malls. So if you're interested in shopping for fashion, you will find a wide range of shops uh, in those malls. For men, there's also 109 Men's. Um, I can't say I know much about 109 Men's because I've never actually shopped for men's clothing in Shibuya because shit is expensive as fuck. Um, but it does exist. Uh, be aware that it is separate from the iconic Shibuya 109 bu building. So Shibuya 109 is like this giant cylinder um, it's pretty iconic. 109 Men's is just some random building off to the side of that. Um, so don't go into the normal 109 building expecting men's shopping there. Um, there are a dozen or so like high class shopping malls sprinkled throughout, um, Shibuya. My personal favorite that I would recommend to listeners of the show is Shibuya Hikarie. Uh, it's right next to the Tokyo station. In fact, you can probably ex, well, you can exit the Tokyo station directly into it. It's a high class shopping mall with lots of really appetizing restaurants and food places. And there are also three floors devoted to art galleries and theaters. So if you're an art nerd, uh, it's the place for you really in Shibuya. Um, if you're a music fan, uh, well, first of all, there are a ton of clubs in Shibuya, of course, because it's like the trendy hip place to be. Um, Club Asia is there. Uh, I've been there in the past. Uh, Amaterasu is unfortunately closed now, so I can't recommend that. Um, there's like big name clubs like Womb is there. Um, like you're probably going to wind up in Shibuya if you're a big clubber, uh, especially if you're in the twenty somethings range. Uh, so there's lots to see there. There's also record stores in Shibuya. Um, so record stores tend to do better in Japan anyway because they're still buying physical media. Um, Tower Records is good if you're looking for new stuff. I think it's like one of the last Tower Records left. Uh, all of the Tower Records that I was aware of outside of Tokyo in the Tokyo Metro, uh, outside of Shibuya in the Tokyo metropolitan area have disappeared. Uh, so I'm not too sure if it's the last one in the Tokyo metro area. I think Machida might still be open, but there are not many left and it's the one that's still standing. It's fucking huge. I think it's like eight floors or something. Huge-ass record store. Highly recommended. Um, there is Disc Union and Reco Fan, which are also 
uh, used music shops. Uh, and of course, uh, across the street from RecoFan, there's also a book off, uh, which offers used CDs just like every other book off. Um, so really cool shit to do if you're a music fan in Shibuya. Um, if you're into Japanese interior design, like simplistic, minimalist, aesthetic stuff, or, uh, crafts, and that stuff. There are two shops you should be taking a look at in Shibuya. First is Tokyo Hands. Tokyo Hands is a large chain of do-it-yourself slash craft stores, and the Shibuya store is the flagship store in the entire chain. Uh, so if you're big into crafts and building stuff and all that shit, Tokyo Hands, you have to go check it out. Similarly, there is a nearby shop called Loft, which is another chain, um, but it focuses less on the do-it-yourself and more on the interior design cutesy decor stuff. Uh, so if you're into either of those, go check those places out. I'm going to add this in here because why not? If you're hunting for arcades, there's only one good one left in Shibuya, unfortunately, and it's the Taito Game Station under the big camera by the Tokyo Station exit. So go enjoy it while it lasts because most of the other ones have closed down in the last year, which makes me sad. That's it for Shibuya. Now I'm going to go into sort of this lightning round of shit you can do, because there are so many other things you can do. Um, so one of the... Uh, I n- named this part Other Popular Things to Do in Japan. So, part one. Go to Tokyo Disney. I went to Tokyo Disney last time I was in Japan. It was kind of cool. Uh, so there are two Disney parks within Tokyo Disney. There's Tokyo Disneyland, which is the kids' side of the park, and there's Tokyo Disney Sea, which is more for the adults. Um, it's a beautiful park with all the usual Disney flourishes, um, unfortunately for us, and this is partly a planning issue and partly the park's fault, I guess, uh, I don't feel like we got to do that much when we were there. Queues are very, very long, and Fast Pass is great if you get there early enough. Unfortunately, we didn't get there early enough, um, and part of that is our fault and part of it isn't. Um, so yeah, uh, like, we got Fast Passes basically all around the same time for everything, which is not good because when you go to the thing that you want to do the most, you get there, uh, get out of there maybe a half hour, 40 minutes later anyway, because you still have to wait. You just have to wait less. Um, so, eh, I, I didn't like that part. Uh, I'm also not particularly invested in Disney characters myself. So my enjoyment of it was lesser than those people who love all of the Disney characters, of course. Um, but one thing I can say is Tower of Terror, after the sun goes down, gives you the most ridiculous view of Tokyo Bay because you're fucking high in the air and you see the entire Tokyo Bay in front of you. It's gorgeous. I wish I could have taken a picture up there. Unfortunately, they took the picture of us and not the Tokyo Bay. <laughs> um, but yeah, Tokyo Disney, you can go do that if you're into that kind of stuff. Uh, if you get there early enough and plan your shit right, which we did not do, you can get a good day out of it. I think Unfortunately for us, we didn't get necessarily our money's worth out of it. Yeah, and I think if you plan accordingly, if you go to a city or a region where there's a Disney park near, and I think it's kind of a good idea to put it on your list. And in some places, I think if you go to Florida, it might be the main reason why you go there. But if you have a day off and you want to do more like just roller coaster or more like theme park stuff, that's a good way to spend time. I have heard previously that uh, New Year's Day is a really good time to go to Tokyo Disney because everyone in Japan is with their families that day, so there's, like, no one in the park. Uh, I think 
Chris no Christmas is a really bad idea never mind uh I thought about it for two seconds and then I was like no that, that's a ba- really bad idea uh but New Year's I've heard really good things from friends who have done it in the past and who can say those things also there are various rebates uh like if you show up in late afternoon I think there's a rebate so that you can basically enjoy half a day there uh if you're more interested in that um so go check out the website to get the full details but i mean it was fun but i don't think we necessarily got our money's worth out of it how far is it from the metropolitan area it's still in what i would consider to be the tokyo metropolitan area um it's oh, okay. maybe 40 minutes out okay so it's like super easy to access yeah Uh, it's Maihama Station, I think, uh, where you have to get off. And in fact, the cool thing is that the station chime for when the train is leaving is uh, It's a Small World. Oh. Yeah. Okay. Uh, bathhouses. Um, I have never been to a Japanese bathhouse, but I'm recommending this because some of my friends absolutely swear by them. Uh, I am not a public nudity kind of person, so I've never had the balls to go try it out. Um, but I have heard good things about Lakwa at the Tokyo Dome. And Oedo Onsen Monogatari in Odaiba. So, uh, the latter one seems to be, um, like a museum-ish thing for, uh, bathhouses. So go check those out if you're interested. If I do oh, have a serious question about bathhouses, though. Yes. Um, it, it might be a bit on the stereotypical <laughs> side, but let's ignore that for a sec. But is it popular with people of our age? People of our generation? I mean, I haven't been, so I can't really say, but I think it's mostly old people. Okay, so even your friends that went there, they, they said it's mostly old people. Mostly, yeah. Okay. Um, okay, next up. If Shibuya isn't hip Japan fashion enough for you, you might want to head out to Harajuku's Takeshita Street. Uh, Takeshita Street has like this notorious reputation for being incredibly, incredibly crowded on weekends with super trendy teenagers in weird fashion. Um, I wound up there by coincidence a couple years ago because we were in the neighborhood and we decided to get to the train station by walking down Takashita Street. And if you love kawaii fashion, that's the place to be. Um, so go check that out if you're into fashion. Fans of Studio Ghibli anime movies may want to go to their museum in Kichijoji. Um, I don't know anything about this myself. Uh, I am embarrass a lot of anime fans by saying that I have never seen a Studio Ghibli mu- movie in my life. Uh, oh my goodness, Tony will hate you. Yes, I you know. Yes, I I am the bane of everyone's existence. I also haven't seen Evangelion <laughs> or uh, much of Gundam at all, so uh, hate me all you want. But uh, one important note about the Kichijoji Museum for Studio Ghibli is you need to buy tickets ahead of time at a Lawson convenience store, which is not necessarily the most accessible thing for a foreigner, foreigner to do because you have to use a machine with Japanese menus. <laughs> so if you want to know how to do it, I'm probably going to put a link in the show notes to a video guide that tells you how to do it. It's very imp- So there's no online ticketing system? As far as I know, there is not. Wow, okay, impressive. Japan's ticket sales generally are done through convenience store kiosks, uh, which is why pretty much everything is sold through them. There hmm. are ticketing options for like concerts and like club events and stuff, but it's still limited. Um, yeah, but even then, most of them are still on those machines in convenience store. No, no, I mean, there are online, like you can go on websites. Like I've bought tickets on Rakuten in the past, uh, but 
like Studio Ghibli isn't necessarily going to be there. It's mostly for music stuff that you're going to find stuff ticketing online. Oh, okay, see. Okay, got it. Uh, next up, this is time sensitive. Uh, go eat a sushi breakfast at Tsukiji Fish Market while you can. Um, I'm going to try to do this this year if possible. And the big reason why this is time sensitive is, uh, well, for those who don't know, Tsukiji Fish Market is the biggest wholesale fish market in the world. But due to the Olympics, they are thinking of moving it to another location. And they were supposed to move it to Tuyosu, uh, this year. But they postponed the move because the proposed destination was criticized for being badly polluted, uh, which is sort of a bad thing if you're talking about a fish market. Um, so right now it's super ambigu- ambiguous what's going to happen with the fish market. So it may be your last chance to enjoy it while it's there. So take advantage of it while you can. Show up early in the morning, line up at one of the many sushi restaurants on site, and buy a set of the freshest picks that were just picked like hours before, and eat some of the world's best sushi. So this sounds super appealing to me. I'm going to try to rope some of my friends into coming with me, uh, because it sounds amazing. It sounds like it's, it's something you need to try before it moves. Yeah, yeah. Well, I assume there's going to be something similar at the new fish market, but this is like the last chance you have to go eat at Tsukiji, uh, which has like... Huge reputation in the scene. So, if you want to take a break from the big city, um, I'm not sure what you're doing in Tokyo, but you can make a day trip <laughs> out to Enoshima and Kamakura. This is 50 minutes out from central Tokyo, about. Uh, Enoshima is a small island in seaside town, so if you're looking for a more rural uh, experience, you can do that. Uh, I would recommend riding the Shonan Shinjuku line all the way out to Ofuna, and then buying an Enoshima Kamakura excursion ticket at the station counter. Um, Enoshima Kamakura excursion ticket gives you unlimited usage of JR Enoshima electric railway and Shonan monorail trains in the area. And this is important because it costs the same price as a round trip on the monorail, and you're going to be making a round trip on the monorail anyway, so you might as well just get the damn thing. Um, so you can ride the monorail all the way to Enoshima sta- station and enjoy... 20 minutes of being suspended around, like, the most beautiful rural sites you can imagine. Uh, and on the seaside, there's an aquarium. There's a super cool surfer vibe to the town. It's really nice. Uh, on the island of Inoshima itself, there's a shrine with a nice shrine market there. And if you want to, you can hike up and go to the observation deck there. Um, you can also go to Kamakura. So Kamakura is really close to Inoshima. And it's a Buddhist temple town, so you can visit tons of different Buddhist temples. Um, and you will go there via the Enoden, which is uh, the Enoshima Electric Railway, which rides literally along the coast of the peninsula. It's absolutely gorgeous, especially during sunset. Um, and it's still a touristic area, but it's a little bit further out from Tokyo, so English proficiency is less of a given. Uh, just a warning to people considering going there. Okay, you're probably surprised that I haven't mentioned Yokohama yet, and I am surprised. And the reason for this is, I think Odaiba sort of covers what Yokohama has to offer for most people. Um, but if you, but it's your own, my yeah, friend. it's my you hood. Always, it's my hood. Yes, yeah. uh, I always mention about it. I didn't want to be too biased, um, but if <laughs> if Odaiba like views of the bay are something up your alley, you may wish to go to Yokohama. I think Yokohama is better than Odaiba personally, but again, I'm biased. Um, it's about 40 minutes out by train from central Tokyo. Again, Yokohama is not in Tokyo. It's just another big city close to it. 
Um, it's not expensive to go by train either. Um, you can get off at Sakura Gicho Station to experience Minato Mirai 21, which is this big, lovely bayside uh, business and shopping district. And um, if you need even more encouragement, there's a Pokemon Center in Landmark Tower. Um, and you're also within walking distance of Chinatown, which is great. Uh, I think it's the only Chinatown in that part of Japan. So if you're into that stuff, you can go check it out. And it's also within walking distance of the Yokohama Station area, which has even more shopping if you're into that kind of stuff, including friends of the show, Sotetsu Join Us, uh, the best mall in the world, sort of. It's sort of an inside joke with me and my friends, and I'm going to get punished if I don't mention it on the show. Um, but yeah, it's super lovely. There's um, Yamashita Park, which is also lovely. You can get beautiful view of uh, the Tokyo Bay and the uh, boats that are getting on there. You can go to Osanbashi, which is lovely. Um, it's just really beautiful. And as someone who is lucky enough to actually be able to go like take a walk down that uh that neighborhood like every night if I want to when I'm in Japan. Uh it's absolutely lovely and I recommend it if you're into pretty things at night. Um last but not least, fans of aquariums have no shortage of options in and around Tokyo. So there are six big ones. Sunshine Aquarium in Ikebukuro, uh Epson Aqua Stadium in Shinagawa, Sumida Aquarium at the base of Tokyo Skytree, which sounds super interesting. Maybe I'll go there this year. Tokyo Sea Life Aquarium in Edogawa. And then if you want to leave Tokyo, there's Hakkeijima Sea Paradise in Yokohama and Enoshima Aquarium in Enoshima. I'm a big fan of aquariums. I've been to the Sunshine Aquarium and Enoshima, ah, Enoshima Aquarium. I personally prefer the one in Enoshima. I think it's bigger and has more appealing stuff. Hakkeijima in Yokohama looks absolutely lovely as well. Um... But yeah, if you're a fan of aquariums, there are lots of good aquariums in Tokyo. Uh, although I hear that the best one is in Kyoto, um, but I haven't been. And that's it for my recommendations. Good. Do, do you have any questions? Uh, you can basically uh, be the substitute for the listener right now and ask me the questions. Um, to be honest, though, uh, I don't have any. And the main reason why is I heard bribes, uh, bribes of this these recommendations throughout the years and what I I think I will like so much maybe if I in a couple of years or who knows next year plan to go to Japan either with you or without you I don't know we'll see uh, but I think it will be a good guide to just revisit in six months a year a couple of years to just remind me about uh, what can be what what are the top tips from Yannick and also especially what I need to make sure that it's on my top five list of things to do. Yeah, there's a lot of stuff to do in Tokyo, and obviously I haven't listed all of it, but I tried to pack like the stuff that interested me and I think would interest our listeners. Well, yeah, and I, th- I think what I like too about your travel guide is like you've identified what we would like, and there's a difference between what typical like tourist guides or tourist book would recommend and what people have already experienced and know that oh yes this is good this is maybe yes it's like typically excuse me typically recommended but um i don't think it is worth the hype or either any other reasons like this so i'm super excited that you've done that and i'm hope for hopefully it will become a 
great guide for our listeners. Well, the amazing thing is when the next episode comes out, not this one, but the next one, I'm going to be on a plane going to Japan. So that's going to be really that's, weird. That's true. That's true. I have a lot of preparation left to do. Um, I'm super busy these days. I have to go buy new shoes. Um, and uh, one of the things I had not foreseen is I actually had to get my Christmas shopping out of the way early because I'm not going to be there for Christmas. Uh, so I had to scramble to get some gifts together and stuff like that. Um, but yeah, I'm really looking forward to my trip. Uh, I'm going to be DJing in late January. Um, so that's going to be fun. Uh, and I'm glad that I was able to share my knowledge of the Tokyo metro area with people. Uh, who knows how many people are going to be impacted by this? Probably not that many, but it'll still be a useful resource, I think. Yep. And I think to maybe end on that note, uh, like you just mentioned, uh, the next episode after this one will be our last one before a small hiatus because Yannick will be enjoying Japan. So I think it will be a good uh, break for both of us, and hopefully we will become uh, we become back uh, refreshed and prepared for uh the next coming months after this small break yep so if you want to take a look at all of the links yannick mentioned throughout this episode and i'm sure he will post uh shit tons of link because there's a lot of stuff to do you can find those links on you can find the show notes on limitlesspossibility.net slash 54 you can also find all of our other episodes especially episode number two on <laughs> limitlesspossibility.net you can also find our show on twitter at at limipo underscore podcast that's l-i-m-i-p-o underscore podcast you can also find myself on twitter at at Lucanush, that's l-u-c-c-o-n-o-u-c-h-e and you can find yannick at sakurina s-a-k-u-r-i-n-a and in two weeks we will talk about swift awesome See you in two weeks. See you in two weeks.